You're listening to Let's Talk Creation. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode, our Christmas episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I am Paul Garner. And I am Todd Wood. And we wish you a Merry Christmas. We do indeed. Uh, And uh, we're really looking forward to this episode. We've got a special guest lined up for you, um, who we will introduce in just a few moments. Um, But let me just begin by saying... um, Uh, Make sure that you hit the notification bell, uh, that you uh, click the subscribe button uh, to get more content from the podcast. And uh, do remember as well to send your questions and comments in. We love to hear from you and uh, make sure that you like our episodes and share them with your friends. Uh, Do do what you can to spread the word. It really helps us to grow the audience. And we're very grateful for all of that. Now, uh, in our podcast uh, so far, one of the topics that we haven't touched on really at all has been the subject of astronomy. And we know that many of our viewers and listeners are very interested in this subject. And given that neither um, Todd nor myself uh, have any expertise whatsoever in astronomy or in the physical sciences, Um, we decided that we would start to put that omission right by inviting a very special guest. And our guest today is Dr. Robert Hill. So, Robert, we are very, very glad to have you join us. Thank you so much for being here. Now, we should probably introduce Robert because, um, Todd, I know you've had Robert along to speak at the uh, Smoky Mountain Creation Retreat. Yes. And you had a good time there talking all things astronomy. We did. I learned a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, Dr. Robert Hill is an associate professor uh, in the Department of Chemistry and Physics at Bob Jones University. Uh, But he's previously taught at a number of other uh, academic institutions. I understand, Robert, you did your doctoral research at Ball State University, and I'm going to read this because this this is what your research was in. Computational modelling of the effects of star spots on the light curves of contact binary stars. Is, is that correct? That sounds like a dissertation title, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know what that means, but it sounds very, very impressive to this non-astronomer. <laughs> Um, and uh, Dr. Hill is a member of the American Astronomical Society and also president of the Creation Research Society. Um, maybe we could just begin there. Why don't you just um, tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about your work, particularly with the Creation Research Society? I'm sure they'd be interested to hear about that, um, Bob. Certainly. The Creation Research Society is the oldest creation organization in the United States. We don't get as much public acknowledgement because of our mission. Our mission is clearly stated is to build the creation model of science. You know, so we don't, we don't build tourist attractions. (laughs) We don't hold super duper mega colossal conferences for lay people. We don't Uh make movies. Other creation groups do that and are very good at it. Our focus is research. As I say, research is our middle name. True. So, (laughs) yeah, literally. And so we 
do our own research. We have a research laboratory. We fund research with research grants. And we publish research. And then we hold a research conference. Word of all those is research. So the topics, the talks I give at my conference, I'm not going to be asked to speak that on a church, at a church. <laughs> yeah. And where would people find uh, the Creation Research Society if they wanted to to find out more about uh, the, the work of the society? Oh, just creationresearch.org. Just search Creation Research Society. It should pop up pretty quick. Okay, that's great. So go check that out, everybody. Uh, I've been a member of CRS. Oh, I've, I can't remember when I joined. Pro probably sometime around the late 80s, I would imagine, 87, 88, something like that. I've been a member uh, ever since. And uh, yeah, do go do go and check out the website and consider joining if, if you're interested in creation research. Now, Bob, we... Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, we wanted to invite you on because you know as as we said in in the beginning you know astronomy is one of those topics that we don't really have any um expertise in uh but we're both very very interested in astronomy i know we love to hear other people who do know about these things talk about them uh and i know that our, our listeners do too and i i guess we can sort of begin just by sort of introducing the discipline of astronomy because astronomy is such a vast discipline uh, we're effectively dealing with much much more than 99% of the entire known universe when we're talking about the field of astronomy and of course it's perhaps the oldest of the sciences because you know you can trace astronomical concepts way back into antiquity so um so we can really only skim the surface i think as we sort of talk about these topics in this episode um but what we wanted to do here is just sort of give our viewers and listeners a, a kind of basic introduction to astronomy, to the discipline, particularly to creation astronomy, and then we can come back in future episodes and perhaps begin to look at some uh, specific topics. So just just help us here, um, Bob, just, just scope out for us um, the kind of boundaries of this this discipline what is it that astronomers study what are the various branches of astronomy how do you even begin to sort of break down the whole universe into manageable <laughs> yeah. you know sub-disciplines <laughs> how do you do that all right so astronomy is basically the study of everything <laughs> that's right <laughs> you know think we start at very very small scales dealing with particles and particle interactions so we're talking about particle physics and nuclear physics mm -hmm. and then we deal with very small scales molecular physics and chemistry you find molecules in space medium scales talk about let's talk about rocky stuff like five ten miles across and then the planets the geology and geophysics is important then you get entire planets in the solar system. It's not about gravity and celestial mechanics. You deal with stars, property of stars, how stars work. Lots and lots of physics goes into that. Big interdisciplinary physics things. Then you start dealing with 
galactic scales, big collections of stars, stars, gas, and dust. They start dealing with clusters of galaxies and then super clusters of clusters of galaxies. Finally, space itself. Huge range from the smallest to the biggest. Like I yeah. said, everything. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, it is just mind blowing. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we can't do justice to all of those subdisciplines today. Um, but one thing that I think, you know, again, you know, you might be able to help us with this, just kind of put some of these things in context. You've talked about how astronomers study the really small stuff. Uh, particle physics comes into, you know, astronomy and cosmology. And then you've got the the larger scales, the, the, the structure of the universe itself. Um, could you help us also to unpack the distance scale of the universe? Because I, for many of us, you know, these distances that astronomers talk about are just incomprehensible <laughs> so can you sort of help to help us even to begin to try to grasp um the the distant scale of the universe um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do we are you asking how we find the distances or well what the distances yeah. are i guess how, first how, and how then big how is, do we measure it yeah yeah how, how big is the universe yeah Okay, so the methods of finding distances. The one that's easiest to think of is basically surveying techniques. And that's good to the distances within the solar system. Yet beyond that, you start looking at something called parallax. Parallax is an easy concept because as a as a Earth goes around the sun. We get different orientations of looking at stars and how much it looks like the star moves over the course of the year is a measure of the distance. If this is easy to, to, to visualize, now hold your thumb up, hold your thumb up. Got it. And now look at, look at, now close your right eye and look at your thumb against the background. Now open both eyes and close your left eye, then alternate. It looks like your thumb moves. How much that moves is a measure of parallax. When it's up close, it looks like it moves a lot. You get way out there, and it looks like it moves smaller. So that method is good to... Now we have satellites doing these kind of measurements. This is good to a few thousand light years. Light years of distance, light travels in one year. The next method out is the, the most simple method is probably the Cepheid variables. It's a, hmm. uh, these are variable stars. They change their brightness intrinsically. This is my annual cough. <laughs> these stars will naturally get smaller and then bigger as they do, their temperature changes and their brightness changes. And the how fast that change is is related to how far away they are. You know, you know, how far away, how, how fast that changes is a measure 
of the intrinsic brightness of that star. And so what you can do is you can see how bright that star looks to us from Earth. Then use that variation in the brightness to find out how bright it actually is. And brightness falls off as an inverse square of distance. Okay. And that method is good for very far distances. Huh. Mm. Eventually, that gets hard to make measurements of. So the next <laughs> method is type 1A supernovas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so the way these happen, you get a white dwarf star with a very large star near and they're orbiting each other. The white dwarf is siphoning gas from this other one. And so the mass of the white dwarf builds up over time. And once the mass of that white dwarf crosses the Chandrasekhar limit, there's a certain size and the it can't support itself anymore. The electron degeneracy pressure breaks. The Pauli exclusion principle quits working. And then it collapses on itself and explodes in an, in an enormous supernova. Because of the, of the way it happens, we know how bright it actually is. So you see how bright it looks to us in the sky, measure. We know how bright it actually is get the distances that way. That's how they're getting distances right. extremely far galaxies. Mm. So can can I ask so you the, can I ask you why why these these variable stars you described why do they get brighter and dimmer? <laughs> they are literally oscillating in size. Oh. Why? In size. <laughs> Why? Why would they do that? <laughs> they have certain properties. I think what it's end up doing is it's changing the ionizations within the, the star itself uh, where it can absorb light or let it go. Okay. It you know, mm. does that in a very mm -hmm. regular pattern. Okay. So oh, in effect, if, if I've... Star. So, so if I've understood this... <laughs> Correctly, then for 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 things that are relatively close to us, you can use a kind of triangulation sort of principle. Yes, but when you're when you're looking at things that are much further away, you you essentially can't use that um, any longer. You call so you the distance ladder. Yeah, and so the parallax is good out to so far that calibrates the Cepheid variables. Yeah. If variables good so far out, you have to use to calibrate other stuff. Right. And what you're doing there is you're looking at the apparent brightness of an object. You know it, you know its actual brightness. From um, so you're then looking at its apparent brightness, and then you can work out how far away it must be to have that apparent brightness in the sky. That's basically Yeah, inverse square with distance. Yeah. So that's very helpful. So what kind of distances are we talking about? I mean, how how far away are these objects? Give us some sense of what this distance scale is. Okay, within our neighborhood, the distance from star to star is, oh, four light years, six light years, ten. 
the galaxy itself might be 100,000 light years across. The distance from one galaxy to another within the same cluster might be million light years. And then clusters to clusters, hundreds of million light years. Mm -hmm. So my car it's, has about yeah, it's just so difficult. My car has about <laughs> 130,000 miles on the odometer. Am I getting close to a light year? <laughs> See, since light is a, a light years of distance, light travels in one year. Okay, that's like six trillion miles, I think. Oh, okay. So the answer is no. I'm not getting anywhere near a light year. All right. Huh. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the, Earth is just... like eight, the Earth is like eight light minutes from the sun. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Which is yeah. weird because the what when you see the sun come up, that's where the sun was eight minutes ago. The sun's already mm -hmm. moved on. And yeah, yeah mm -hmm. you're just seeing yeah. it now. Very yeah. Very weird idea. Yeah. Maybe sometimes yeah, it's it, just, it, just mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. So that that's really helpful. So so that kind of gives us some sense of, you know, the scope of the discipline and the distances between these objects. Not that I think my mind can really grasp those distances, but at least it gives us some sort of context. Um, the, the other thing that I think before we start to delve into some specifics of creation astronomy that we perhaps ought to um, just talk about briefly is what the Bible tells us about um, your discipline. You know, what what does what insights does the Bible give us concerning the origin and history of the cosmos that might act as some kind of constraints on our scientific theorizing? Well, we're not as lucky as the geologists are. You guys have three or four chapters. <laughs> you know, Genesis 6 through 9 gives you a lot of data to work with. Yeah. You know, we've got the creation week, day one, you know, the heavens, the earth, and light. Day four, the sun and the moon are directly mentioned. And then he made the stars also. The rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, that happened too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is an interesting yeah. thing is we just don't have much to work with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because the, pur the purpose of these things, signs, seasons, and so forth, astronomy has typically been used for timekeeping. Mm -hmm. And that's an impressive thing by itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, in a sense, I mean, that, that you could see that as a hindrance that the Bible doesn't actually tell us very much. But on the other hand, it also perhaps gives us a great deal of freedom in terms of developing models um, and exploring different possibilities for explaining the data. Um, so, yeah. So it's whether you're a glass half full or a glass yes. half empty kind of guy. <laughs> um, so that kind of brings us on then to, to, I think, the discipline of creation astronomy itself. And... You know, from what I've read of the literature, and I, ha you know, I'm, like I say, I have no expertise in this, but I, I do sort of delve into the literature a little bit, dip into it. Uh, it seems to me that there are sort of three broad areas of creation astronomy research. 
that you can probably sum up as design origins and age age questions and i just wonder whether we could sort of briefly explore each of those um in turn maybe highlighting some areas where perhaps creation astronomer astronomers have been able to make some progress and some areas perhaps where there are still lots of open questions so the first of those is is the idea of design and i think for us as creationists we're quite used to thinking about the concept of design as it applies particularly to the biological world you know to living things to living organisms but what can we say about the design of the physical universe itself is is there evidence that we can point to for example that the cosmos is in some way designed for life um and if so what you know what what's some of that evidence look like okay there's actually quite a bit for this um i like the privileged planet approach hmm. earth is designed so that intelligent life could be here and understand the rest of the cosmos hmm. you know so you know wow. it ends up being things like earth is just the right distance from the sun and also, the sun is exceptionally stable. You look at other stars around the same size and mass as a sun, and they're not as stable as the sun. Then hmm. uh, some of them will throw great more radiation at times out into space. The sun's exceptionally stable, as if it was chosen for this. Hmm. Um. The moon is just the right size to make eclipses possible and spectacular. No other moon in the solar system around the planet is like ours in that sense. Now, that by having it be that way, allowed us to observe the solar corona and open the door to astrophysics. The element helium was discovered in the corona spectroscopy. Also, the Early test of general relativity had to do with the way stars were able to bite from the stars around and match general relativity quite well. Open the door for cosmology, large-scale structures. Hmm. Um, the moon itself, by being so big compared to the Earth, it gyro-stabilizes the Earth's spin on its axis. Because it's, as it spins, it's likely to start processing. So changing that tilt, that tilt's very important for seasons. That changes much, our seasons change dramatically. The moon, by being the size it is and the distance it is, that is very stable, which certainly helps life on Earth. The moon, at the right. size and distance, produces strong tides in the oceans, which then will wash will wash the coastlines and bring in nutrients to the coastline, making life more possible. Also, there just so happens there's a large planet in just the right place in the solar system that will reflect a lot of asteroids and comets away from the Earth. Jupiter. Also, the location of where the solar system is. We are not in a globular cluster. You would never, it would just be light all the time. You wouldn't be able to see anything else. 
by not being there, um, we have less radiation coming down, and also we can see the rest of the universe. We're in the, in the Milky Way galaxy, and we're in between two spiral arms in just the right place. Away from a lot of nearby supernovas, which are farther out, reducing the radiation coming down the Earth, and allows us to see the rest of the universe. We're not in the galactic nucleus. We've got lots of supernovas going off, less, very dangerous. And we can see the rest of the universe because we're not there. You know, things like that. Yeah. Also, also, so, you, also you look at the, just the beauty of a lot of the uh, cosmic stuff. There is a website, Astronomy Picture of the Day, APOD. You go there, you got these incredible pictures. People love those. They make posters of them, put them on the wall. This is God's own artwork. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's interesting. So I'm, I'm yeah, just interested in the, in the eclipse. I want to comment on the eclipse and then we can go on. Because okay. I've, I've heard this argument before that, oh, hey, the moon is just the right size that we can have full eclipses. And I've always thought, well, so what? <laughs> It doesn't make the earth better for living, but that makes more sense now that you explain it that way because it's unlocking our ability to understand what we see. As if yeah. God wanted us to know the rest of the universe and see how great he is. Ah, I get it. I get it. Thank you. Yeah. I understand a yeah. little better now. So that so that's really interesting because you know there are there are some aspects of, that we might point to as as uh, design features which people kind of dismiss because they say well if it wasn't like this we wouldn't be here to observe it but actually when it comes for example to the eclipse situation with the moon it didn't have to be that way but actually it's really really good for us that it is <laughs> yeah, it's funny um, because, because it allows us evolution's talk about this oh yeah this is a lucky accident allowed us to do this this and this Right. Yeah, lucky right. accident. Real lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as you say, there are lots of those lucky coincidences um, concerning sort of the solar system and where we're located and all of those kinds of things. What, what about more broadly this thing that I hear referred to sometimes as fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the universe? What What is that all about? Yeah, basically it comes down to the laws of physics – have just the right values to allow intelligent life. Mm -hmm. For example, gravity is an inverse square law with distance. The electric force is an inverse square law with distance. Well, in theoretical physics, we do this in my mechanics classes. What if that exponent was something other than two? What if it was 2.001 or 1.9999? If it is something other than two, orbits become unstable. Huh. You know, for huh. gravity, the solar system would slowly fall apart. Electrons would do weird things, and atoms and molecules would be unstable. If you want to have life, that needs to be a two. God chose wisely. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Also, also with that, you look at the values of the fundamental physical constants. You know, the 
neutral gravitation constant, and then electric permittivity of free space, magnetic permeability of free space, the Boltzmann constant, you know, the electron mass, all these kinds of things. It turns out if you change any one of those by just a little bit, it's like the universe destroys itself. Or else things happen and you might get bacteria, but that's it. Nothing else could live. It's like these things were chosen to allow intelligent life to exist. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. He yes, he did. <laughs> and I, I sometimes hear this um idea about fine tuning sort of discussed in the context of the anthropic principle. Um and I understand there are different forms of the anthropic principle, but you know, what what could you tell us about that? Could you just sort of unpack what the anthropic principle is and perhaps how it differs from a creationist type of design argument? Um, I think the anthropic principle is more or less, we can exist because these other things are true. And I, right. I think it's the broad idea where creationists approach it like, well, God was certainly a genius picking these numbers, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we have someone to give credit to. Yeah. yeah. And admire and worship. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it's interesting that there is this thing called the anthropic principle that suggests in some way that even non-believers recognize that there is something, you know, anthropic, something man focused about the creation itself which is really really interesting that they recognize that um even if they don't they, they don't they can't account for it in the way that we can as creationists well, that's one reason they have like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. all these other things really did happen somewhere and nothing happened we just have to mm -hmm. be the one that worked so all of them were right, tried right 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 but we're in the one that worked. Yeah, yeah. Never mind. Well, that's that... not really science. It's pure speculation. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very helpful. So that that's design. And then the the second kind of big area I see um, in creation astronomy concerns origins. Obviously, um, how would you say that creationist astronomers approach? the origins questions differently to non-creationists? Well, this is where your worldview dictates a lot of things. The worldview you hold will affect how you interpret data. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're already convinced of like an evolutionary long-age time span, you naturally interpret everything through that filter. As creationists, we're allowed to consider options they wouldn't consider. So I guess I guess the big difference is that um, a non-creationist is in effect tied to a naturalistic type of explanation, mm -hmm. whereas we can perhaps explore um, non-naturalistic explanations mm -hmm. for phenomena and uh, you know other, other kinds of explanations outside of the the, the mainstream, um, and that opens up some research possibilities for us. Mm -hmm. um i i guess 
what most people associate with a, a kind of secular view of astronomy as the Big Bang model um, in terms of the origin of the universe itself. Uh, just tell us a bit about the Big Bang model and you know what what work have creationists done to try to develop alternatives to the standard big bang cosmology hmm uh, that could take a couple of days you know it's <laughs> <laughs> a big question <laughs> all right the rationale for the big bang cosmology starts with the observation that galaxies are redshifted in their spectrum implying they're going away from us measured thousands of times and the relationship between how fast moving in the distance they are from us is pretty linear mm. so you project backwards when everything was closer together there was a time in the past where everything was on top of each other mm. that would be the beginning of the big bang yeah okay that's the observational what's what drove this um since then, you have to, to to explain this. You have to fold in general relativity, particle physics, all kinds of other stuff. That's like the mm -hmm. quick, dirtiest. Is why they think this. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. as far as as far as creationists looking at it, well, alternatives we haven't done enough. The big mm -hmm. problem we always have is. There's not enough astronomers who are creationists who have credentials in the field. The biologists and geologists are in pretty good shape. You have enough people, you can explore things, bad ideas around. The number of creationists with credentials in astronomy, I could count on my hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Too many times we've got well-meaning people whose degrees might be in chemistry or engineering, shooting their mouths off of something <laughs> they don't understand. They never had astrophysics in their life. <laughs> they mean well. Yeah. And they're smart. But they don't have the background to evaluate things well. Yeah. I, I like talking to you because it reminds me how utterly ignorant I am of your field. <laughs> <laughs> I read I read some of these some of these books and articles and and I, well I skim them I can't really understand them and I and I you know and I'm I can sort of make some interesting you know outside observations of sort of philosophical issues and things like that but I have no concept of any of the the physics behind it so it's good to talk to someone like this to to, to remind us to be humble about <laughs> <laughs> about the origin of the cosmos. Now, attempts yeah. have been made. Uh, the first real attempt was D. Russell Humphreys with his white hole cosmology. He since moved on from that, but it was pivotal, pivotal in changing the way we started thinking about things. This opened the door for general relativity in the creation movement. For some reason, we thought general relativity was kind of like natural selection and mutation for neo-Darwinism or something. <laughs> but once and so that opened the door, and there's been other attempts made, but there's absolutely no consensus right now. 
is that suggestions being made, one guy presents a model, another guy presents a model, but don't have enough people who can then debate and like, that's a problem here, you need to tweak that, it's a problem there, you need to tweak that. Oh, that's good. Yeah, like, like individual personalities, everybody wants to be the next Einstein. <laughs> me, me, and I me, think that... My model. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I think there's a challenge there, isn't there? That we we need um we need young creationists who perhaps you know have skills in um in physics and and so on to to maybe specialize in areas like cosmology and oh, astrophysics yeah. so they can contribute to this research effort because there is so much work to be done and so many opportunities that there would be you know to make a real contribution in creationism. For those who are so inclined, so you know, there's a challenge for for young students to consider uh, whether that's a field they could, they could go into and and contribute in. That's that's. There's all kinds of other aspects of this origins question that we could talk about. I mean, besides the Big Bang, because we're only talking there about the yeah, you know, we're talking about the origin of the universe as a whole. But there's all kinds of things. There's evolution of uh large scale structure in the cosmos and there's evolution of galaxies and life cycles of stars and the origin of planetary systems and you know we don't we don't have time in this episode to kind of get into the weeds on all all of those but uh there's such a huge amount of of work to be done in all these areas i i think i'm right in saying correct mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then the third um, aspect of creation astronomy research that we should briefly touch on concerns age, age questions. Um, I think it's fair to say that most creationists think that not only the Earth and life on the Earth are young, but also the cosmos itself is young. Uh, in contrast, obviously, to conventional uh, astronomy models where the universe is about 13 0.8 billion years old i think and the solar system about 4.6 billion years old um so there's a huge difference here uh in terms of how we think about the age of the objects that we're seeing um what work has been done by creationists to look at age indicators that might point to a young cosmos do you, do you have some examples of work that's been done there okay uh one of them is recession of the moon from the Earth. Mm -hmm. The moon is slowly getting farther away from the Earth, in order like a centimeter or so a year. And we can measure that from retroreflectors left on the moon by the Apollo missions. Then we bounce a laser from Earth off the moon and back and time it. So that we have very precise measures of that. So you have conservation of angular momentum involved here. The moon is tidally locked to the Earth. It can't change its rotation. Now, the Earth is slowing on its axis. The spin is slowing. We can measure that with atomic clocks. And that's primary, that slowing is primarily due to tidal friction of the oceans on the ocean floor. Earth is slowing. That means it must transfer angular momentum to the moon. And the moon speeds up in its orbit so it slowly gets farther and farther away. So backwards in time, the moon must have been closer. The closest the moon could have ever been is the Roach limit for the Earth. The Roach limit is the distance from the Earth at which an object cannot be held together gravitationally. 
Outside that, it's fine. Enormous tides. Inside that, gravity can't hold the object together. To take it from the Roach limit out to its current distance, that's like 1.4, 1.6 billion years. Oh. That's a lot. But Earth Moon systems are supposed to be like 4.6 billion years. So something's going on there. The usual evolution of tendons, well, the moment of inertia the Earth changed over time. You need more, yeah, that needs more work. Another one that's very yeah. interesting is the faint young sun paradox. Mm. <laughs> okay, in the standard model for the solar system, the early sun should have been faint. But on the same time scale, life should have evolved on Earth and been thriving. You need more heat and light from the sun for this, yet the early sun was faint. So they start arguing, well, maybe there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to the greenhouse effect. <laughs> That's a problem. Maybe it's not as that. The, one of Jupiter's moons, Io, is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Every time you send a space probe by, there's a couple of massive volcanoes going off. Well, it's so far away from the sun, shouldn't it have cooled down by now? Well, the usual explanation is Io is in a 421 resonance with other moons, uh, Ganymede and Europa, other moons of Jupiter, and then it's like for every Every time Europa goes, every time uh, Europa goes around Jupiter, Io goes around twice as a resonance. Every time, like I think it's Ganymede goes around once, Io goes around four times. Is that tends so that tends to make the orbit more elliptical. And so, because of that, Io is constantly being stretched and then let go, stretched and then let go. That heats at tidal heating. You get a similar effect if you take a ball, a rubber ball, and squeeze it a bunch. Or you can really see how the mechanical work on an object is a heating effect. Take a paper clip, do this with it until it breaks. Mm -hmm. you put your finger right where it broke. That's downright yeah, hot. hot. Yeah. So they're thinking something like that's going on with iron. That sounds like a good explanation. However, when you actually look at the numbers, um, the numbers aren't matching up for how much heat it's giving off. It's still too warm for that, implying young. Um, Enceladus and Triton are moons, uh, Saturn, I believe, and um, they have cryovolcanism. Instead of lava, we're talking about ice, <laughs> ice volcanoes. What are, what are they spewing? Water or ice? Ices. Okay. Uh, it's flush. <laughs> okay. It's so cold. Yeah, like this slush thing's thrown out. Well, Io's weird because it's sulfur, not rock. And so I think that's tidal heating, and all you're running the same problem. Um, a favorite for a long time is the idea of short period comets. A comet is a, every time it goes around the sun, loses some of its mass, 
because the sun heats it up, making the tail. Ice ice sublimates and gets pushed out, dust goes out. Well, a comet go around the sun maybe 100, 200 times, something like that. But it's losing mass every time. Now, a short period of comets, one has a period, no less than 100, 200 years. Who's making the definition? <coughs> well, if the solar system is 4.6 billion years old, why do we still have short period comets? They should have burned out by now. Now, evolutions aren't dumb. We have to get away from that idea. And so, I remember when I was in grad school, I asked one of my professors, so, what's the, the, the explanation is there's a comet bank way out there called the Oort Cloud. We never young Oort who proposed it. And uh, you have these really long period comets, 100,000 years of periods. Every now and then, when they're getting close to the sun, Jupiter or something perturbs the orbit, and now it's a short period comet. Somewhere in grad school in the 80s, I think, I asked my one of my professors, so what really is the best evidence for the existence of the Earth cloud? And he's like, hmm, yeah, that's a good question. I suppose the best evidence for the existence of the Earth cloud is we still have a short period of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> okay. Now, we do have evidence that some comets are long enough period. They go out in that range, but you actually need something in orbit, long period orbit around the sun. They haven't seen that yet. This really hypothetical. So these arguments you're you're sharing with us, these are not. These are what what I would call little hints and teases, right? They're not getting us to six thousand years ago, <laughs> right? They're just telling us there's something wrong with the way we're thinking about the universe yes. as it appears at first glance. But you, mm -hmm. is that right? That's basically it. Yeah. So yeah. So if you sort of at first glance look at it and you sort of make some really simple assumptions you come away with, oh, this must be billions of years old. And then you start looking more closely and you realize, oh, well, that's not going to work for something's this. Up. Yeah, something, something's funny going on here. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. good to know. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. So we do have these sort of clues that might cause us to start to question the conventional chronology. But as creationists, we also face some quite thorny problems of our own i think um and the one of course that everybody talks about is the problem of the travel time of starlight and i know that's a that's <laughs> that's a huge issue we're not going to solve that one <laughs> in well, the last few not. minutes of this episode <laughs> no. um but are, are there do you think within the creation model there's the prospect of being able to address some of those types of questions through the research that's being done. Well, to be honest, this may be a mystery until Jesus returns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, however, general relativity may have some possibilities for us. Yeah. Like uh, Humphrey's white hole cosmology started the development of these ideas, but there's no consensus. Um, if the Earth is, say, near the middle of the universe, 
this kind of makes sense given we're the center of God's attention, then if that's the case, there's a, a, something called gravitational time dilation, which has been measured. Time can flow at different rates depending on the strength of the gravity field. Sure. Uh, GPS satellites must take that into account. Otherwise, they don't work. So it's conceivable time could go incredibly slow where we are, but out in some galaxy might be super fast. And so that might solve it. There's other things. Um, and it's not just a 6,000 years issue. The purpose of stars for signs and seasons means Adam on like day eight, oh, yeah. look up in the sky and see them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of this, well, is creation week. God was doing miraculous stuff. We're never going to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. So, yeah, it's we've looked at those three sort of big areas, design and origin and age. And it, it seems to me, listening to what you, you've had to tell us, um, there are loads and loads of unresolved questions. There is enormous scope for creationists to do more work in all of these areas. And I think in many ways, need a few cosmology, <laughs> yeah, cosmology is one of the most underdeveloped areas of the creation model. Um, and, you know, well, we desperately need trying more. trying now. Before it's like, well, God did it. Yeah. Mm. Okay, God yeah. gets an A, but... Yeah. But we desperately need more workers, don't we? We need more people who are trained in these disciplines to, to help us. So that that's very helpful. Um, we're, we're fast uh, running out of time with this episode, and I feel like we've kind of raced through um, so many topics, and uh, and we're, we're going to have to come back to many of these in future episodes and look at them in more detail. But we did want to close out this episode because this is our uh, Christmas episode. And here we are talking to an astronomer, and we just could not resist the opportunity <laughs> to ask you about the Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, what was it? Um, <laughs> what was the Star of Bethlehem? So we've got this description in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, in the Nativity account there, of this star that directs the wise men to the place where you know Jesus is. And, of course, there have been loads of attempts over the years to sort of explain the star and to give it some kind of scientific explanation. And I just wonder whether you could sort of help us. What are some of those scientific explanations, and do they work? <laughs> you know, what, what are the merits or demerits of these ideas? Okay. One attempt was saying it's a comet. Long tail. There's even a Christmas carol with that. Tail as big as a kite, or whatever it is. That, oh, yeah. In that song. Mm -hmm. um, comets definitely would not work. Because comets, forever in ancient times, they were seen as omens of something very bad. Ah. You know, there was a comet in the sky, Julius Caesar was assassinated. There was a comet in the sky, 1066. The Battle of Hastings in Britain lost. So forever, comets were seen as something bad. 
So no one would associate that. Also, um, no one else saw this thing. That ends up being a significant thing. Because remember, the, the the wise men came to Jerusalem. We saw his star on the east. And no one there knew anything about it. And so comet just doesn't work. Some, some suggest maybe a, a shooting star, a meteor. Those could point. Well, yeah, but they don't last very long. And if you had something lasting that long, it would have been written down by somebody. This is unusual. Um, people says a nova or a supernova, too short in duration. No one else saw this. Because you have to remember, even to, today we don't look at the sky much. Back then, especially in uh, those areas, uh, Jerusalem used a lunar calendar. The month was determined by the phase of the moon. And so uh, the beginning of the month is new moons. They had people watching the sky. The 15th of the month is the full moon. Notice most of the festivals are like on the 15th of the month. And so people were looking at the sky. Unusual things would have been noted. Um, also, this idea that in, in, uh, looking at planets, if they the because they move around the sky, is what they call planets. Planet means wanderer. So planets are stars that move around from night to night. And so it's been suggested they're like three planets got really close together, and that that was the star. Well, they were you could you know look at the the program, see how close they would have been. They never would have been close enough in the sky to be seen as a A star. It would have always been three. And you would think uh, they would know, right? I mean, if because the, these guys know where the planets are. They would know, oh, look, Jupiter and Mars and Venus are all together. They would know that that's not a star, right? Yeah, they know there's three. Yeah. Well, they're, well, they're called, they were called uh, planets are considered wandering stars. Yeah. Any light in the sky was a star. Yes. Planets moved around from night to night, so they were special. And so that just doesn't really work. None of them really match up with an account in the nativity. Um, I would go with something supernatural. It was a time for supernatural stuff. Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the only account we have is in Matthew. See, when they, you know, when the Magi got to Jerusalem, those they didn't go straight to Bethlehem. They went to Jerusalem. Something told them something big was happening. Naturally, go to the capital, Jerusalem. No one there knew what was going on. Then they saw the star again, and it was that that led them to Bethlehem. This seems something very special. They're the only ones that really saw or understood what they were seeing. Yeah. And of course, the important thing was the Magi got there when they did. Because right after the Magi got there, what did Herod decide to do? Yeah, he decided to kill, kill all the babies. Yeah. So, so Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus had to leave right now. 
Well, they weren't that wealthy, so they had to take off and just leave what they had. But after the Magi were there, now they've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three very compact, very, very expensive things. You know, so Joseph could have easily bought his way into a caravan to Egypt. Hmm. Hey, very here's a bag of gold. Can you let me in? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. I as I've thought about the Star of Bethlehem, you know, I can't help but remember the fact that the people of God in the Old Testament um were led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and Miracle that stuff. God often guides his people, yeah, by by supernatural lights. And the and the fact that it stood over where the child was. Yeah. Um it's very hard to imagine a an astronomical object pinpointing a particular house in a <laughs> in a particular place but yeah because um, that you you it yeah. have to be very very close to the planet right to be able to say oh no it's not all right overhead yet it you know yeah. you'd wander from house to house uh and realize oh it's it's this place this is it that's that's very low altitude you couldn't yeah. do that with an actual star out in the hinterlands of the universe because they wouldn't get that specific i've always i've always thought there's no way this is a this is a a star as we think of it uh it, this mm -hmm. is too weird <laughs> yeah 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 well that's fascinating we 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 need to start to wind the episode up I, i'm afraid but this has been a really interesting discussion and i definitely hope we can come back and explore uh, some of these topics in more detail in, oh, in future yeah. episodes. Oh, I'd love to. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time. We've really appreciated having you well, here as a guest. Uh, oh, it's our pleasure. Um, now, we don't know, I think, uh, necessarily what's coming up next, but... Always um, a surprise. <laughs> there's a bit of... There's a bit of a break um, because uh, this is our last episode before uh, the Christmas holidays. Um, do remember to check out all of our... Um, streaming platforms and our show notes and all of that stuff uh, on our website, which is courseside.org forward slash podcast. And of course, if you have comments and questions, we love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at podcast at courseside.org or you can leave comments on our YouTube videos. As we said at the beginning of the episode, don't forget to subscribe to um, our channel. Um, hit the notification bell so that you get notices of future episodes. Um, like, share, leave a positive review. Um, all of that helps. And Todd, um, this is the Christmas season yes. and it's a time for giving. And yes. we need to just talk about donations from we viewers do. and listeners. So we do. You've been doing some number crunching, I as have. we've uh, mentioned in previous episodes, yeah. and we've worked out that it costs about $600 um, or about £500 here in the UK per episode um, to keep the podcast coming. So if people would like to help us to cover the costs of producing the podcast, and of course it's subsidised by the ministries that we both work for, um, how do people go about doing that? If they want to give to... The work of core academy todd T tell us how people can do that yeah we would we would ask you to check out uh coresi.org slash donate um c-o-r-e-s-c-i dot o-r-g slash donate that is a 
place where you will find links to all of our um, giving uh, options, including uh, our mailing address where you can send your checks or you can give us money online through PayPal or you can sign up for become a monthly donor by PayPal. And uh, we would appreciate all of that. If you want to specifically uh, discuss having your idea on the podcast and supporting a full episode, sponsoring a full episode for 600 bucks, feel free. We will be happy to talk to you about whatever ideas you have. Um, yeah. And we would be happy to, to, to um, include your, your work, your ministry as part, part of the uh, sponsorship package as well. So that's a possibility for those listeners who are interested in that, in that kind of uh, outreach as well. So we, we can talk about that. Paul, where can we give to um, uh, the podcast in the UK? Yeah, well, if people want to visit our website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, um, there is a donate button on the homepage, and that will take you to uh, a web page that tells you all of the options for giving, uh, how you can give regularly, how you can give a one-off donation. Uh, there's a PayPal facility, particularly if you're outside the UK. That's probably the most efficient way to give to Biblical Creation Trust. And we are very grateful for all those who give and help to support the work that we're doing and help to keep the podcast uh, happening. Well, uh, that's the end of this episode. It's been a fun episode and uh, we'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks time after Christmas. But we should end by wishing you all a very, very happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Happy Christmas. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coreside.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.